This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. And this week's pick is their line of historic competition Shelby Cobras in 143rd scale by TSM. Use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout and get 10% off your order. Limitations apply. From race cars to street cars and everything in between, it's ModelCitizenDieCast.com. Because your inner child still wants to play with cars. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. Greetings to all of you listening far and wide. Great to have you here. And before we get started, I want to share that recently Horsepower Heritage was listed as one of the best automotive podcasts over at Feedspot.com, which is billed as the Internet's largest human curated database of bloggers and podcasts. So that was kind of cool to see. And, you know, I worked pretty hard to bring you guys great stories and guests with every episode, so it's always nice to get recognized. And by the way, if there's a topic or a guest you'd like to see on the show, go to horsepowerheritage.com, drop me a line, just click on the contact button over there and fire away, and I'll do my best to fulfill your wishes. All right, my guest today is Ed Justice Jr. Now, Ed is a lifelong motorsport photographer. He started when he was just a teenager. And his family's history with hot rods and auto racing goes back to the 1930s. Now, after World War II, his father and his two uncles went into business with their own line of oil additives, lubricants, and other products. And the Justice Brothers Company has been sponsoring race cars ever since, from stock cars to Daytona to Le Mans. Ed's also an award-winning broadcaster who hosted the Road & Track radio show which was syndicated on over 60 terrestrial and satellite stations every week, and he's emceed countless Concours events over the years, all over the country. And he's a motorsport historian who's known just about everyone in American racing in the last 50 years. He's also the co-author of a fantastic book called Legacy of Justice, which is just one subject we'll talk about today. So I sat down with Ed not long ago, surrounded by his amazing car collection, And we covered a lot of ground. And in addition to this audio version, you can see the full video version of this interview on my YouTube channel. There's also a bonus video where Ed talks about some favorite photos over his 50-year career, and that is not to be missed. Great photography. So check those out. And if you enjoy Horsepower Heritage, you can support the show by following it on your favorite podcast app. Just click that plus button you see on your screen. And also leave me five stars and a quick review. That's really important because it helps new listeners discover the show. I don't make up the rules. I'm just telling you how it works. Also really important, I depend on you guys to keep spreading the word. And that's another way the show grows. So please be part of that effort. You guys are such a great audience and I can't do this without you. And now without further ado, here's my interview with Ed Justice Jr. Right here on Horsepower Heritage. Well, Ed, thanks for doing this today. It's really a pleasure to be here at your collection and so impressive, I mean. Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, it represents uh, our family and American racing and, uh, you know, it's it's eclectic. Uh, there isn't any, you know, one particular thing. We're all over the board. I mean, you know, you've got drag racing, you've got dirt oval racing, uh, the Spaceballs, Mercedes, I mean, uh, you know, 
dry lakes. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it, when my dad and I started this, uh, we'd see things that we liked and, uh, and just say, hey, that would be sort of fun. And, you know, like midget auto racing, we have clearly the largest collection of midget auto race cars uh, in existence for whatever that means. And uh, that's a big part of our past. I mean, my dad and uncle, uh, there's an image on the wall behind me that uh, they built their first race car, which was a midget auto race car, preteen. And then my uncle went to work for Frank Curtis as his first employee. And of course, my dad worked there too. And uh, Curtis was most well known for his midget auto race cars and Indy cars. And he built some other ones, sport cars. And, but he, the most that he built, the hot, largest quantity were the midget auto race cars. And it was a great, you know, it was the number one form of racing after World War II. So. Sure, that was how you got into racing. Right, and how you made it to Indianapolis. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's a great form of racing for a lot of reasons. And it still goes on today. Now, the Justice Brothers story really kind of starts around 1936, right? When your dad came out to California? Yeah, well, yeah, it actually, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a good question that's not an exactly easy to answer. I mean, it really starts in Kansas, south of Kansas City, when uh, they started building that first race car, et cetera. But my dad came out to California, yeah, in the late 30s. Uh, pre-World War II. He had gone to aircraft mechanic school, Fry Aircraft School in Kansas City. Fry Aircraft School was created by Donald Fry, who was the brother of Jack Fry. Jack Fry was one of the founders of uh, TWA, and they were icons in early aviation. I mean, this is in the early, early days of aviation. Uh, if you remember, in World War II, we didn't even have the Air Force. My dad was in what they called the Army Air Corps. It was part of the Army at that point. So when he came out to California after having graduated as an aircraft mechanic, uh, A&E, airframe and engines, uh, he went to work for Douglas Aircraft in the flight test department, uh, exactly what it sounds like, flight test. Uh, working under Donald Douglas Jr., the son of the founder of Douglas Aircraft. And of course, you know, Douglas, Lockheed, Boeing, uh, those are McDonald, uh, later, you know, merged into McDonald Douglas. Uh, those are icons of aviation world. So your dad found himself really on the ground floor in the epicenter of what would become uh, one of the most important manufacturing areas for aircraft in the United States and, and motorsport. Yeah, you know, my dad, look at, uh, he was Midwesterner through and through, my, my family. My mom was from outside of Omaha, Nebraska. So our, you know, my parents' roots were all in the Midwest you know, like Walt Disney, like Johnny Carson, like a lot of icons that uh, uh, a lot of West. people, yeah, in America know. I mean, the Midwestern uh, whole feeling, you know, uh, very much pro-America, uh, very much salt of the earth people. And, uh, but my dad wanted to go to California really bad. He, he just uh, so saw that what you alluded to, that things were happening in California. 
And this is the place you needed to be if you wanted to be involved in the action. Uh, you needed to be there for uh, the aviation. He loved palm trees. He loved the year-round weather. I mean, I've got pictures of their little race car in Kansas sitting out by the curve covered with snow. Uh, my man, he was just really over that. Uh, he wanted to go where you could, you know, drive your car, a nice car, and he, he very much was into the custom car world uh, and had a 36 Ford uh, sedan convertible that he had customized. And when he came to California, he continued to customize that. And so, yeah, it, 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 was, it was where my dad really wanted to be, needed to be. He was the youngest of six kids. There were three girls and three boys in their family. And uh, he found a home when he came to California. He just loved it. He ended up moving the rest of the family out here. Uh, your dad spoke to his brother Zeke, right, first and said, hey, you ought to come out. Yeah, well, my dad was the youngest of the six kids. Uh, and, uh, the, and it was exactly three girls and three boys, not two girls, a boy, you know, the other girl and whatever. And so uh, my dad was in Santa Monica. My dad was a great roller skater. He was a great ice skater. And I mean talking top level okay uh i never reached that quality uh and so he was at the roller rink in santa monica and he met a, a guy who was a male secretary to a guy by the name of joel thorne joel thorne was a east coast kid that had inherited a huge amount of money half a billion billion dollars i forget the conversion in today's dollars it was huge his dad uh, owned the Chase Bank. His dad was Pullman Rail Cars, uh, old East Coast money. His father had gotten killed by the side of the road changing a tire, as of, the story goes. Of all things. Yeah, and, and so Joel inherited this money in a trust. His father had also just finalized a divorce, uh, not from Joel's mom, as I remember, from his second or third marriage or whatever it was. And, uh, and so when Joel became of age, he came to California and created a race shop. He had the money, had no adult supervision, and he would get these checks. You know, it was doled out. I mean, he didn't just boom, get it. He got so much a week. So my dad met this fellow who was Joel Thorne's uh, male secretary, and he just got to talking, you know, and making friends and all that. And uh, he said that they were looking to hire people. Well, my dad was very happy working at Douglas Aircraft, had a great job there. Uh, but he told the guy, my brother, Zeke, whose real name was Lawrence Milton, but he had got a nickname Zeke as a, as a young kid, uh, has uh, the talents I think you're looking for. And the guy said, well, send them on out. Have them come on out. We'll put them to work. So my dad got in touch with my Uncle Zeke. My Uncle Zeke was working at Western Auto at that time, uh, which is a company uh, that was founded by a gentleman by the name of George Pepperdine, who founded a famous college here in Southern California also. Sure. And, and uh, 
my uncle Zeke wasn't at first really game for coming out, but my dad says, no, you need to come out here. Got him out here. He went to work for uh, Thorne. And that was really uh, one of the real first seeds that then would later just put them in the middle of everything. I mean, when it came, Frank Curtis worked at Thorne's. He rented a, he rented a space upstairs uh, in the building. Uh, that some, what would become legends, worked at Thorns, and uh, so yeah, it was it was an amazing move and uh, really affected them. Now your dad served in the Army Air Forces in World War II, and then came home and went right back into fabrication work. Yeah, so my my dad was the only one of the three brothers that was able to serve in World War II. Uh, when it looked like he was going to get drafted, he enlisted, uh, like a lot of, you know, people did, uh, and because he wanted to be a pilot, and but he couldn't pass the color test. Sure. And uh, so, because of his experience, they did take him into the Army Air Corps, and uh, he served in that way. He ended up becoming a flight engineer, and he, and he did uh, fly the right seat, co-pilot seat, quite a bit once he got over in the theater, uh, never bombing missions. Uh, he was part of the what they call the ferry squadron. And the ferry squadron, uh, my dad would always say, we were the janitors of the Air Force. They would ferry planes to bases for the bomber crews to take, and then they would also ferry damaged planes back to repair depots. And so they were logistics in today's world. Uh, so he got to fly a lot. Uh, my uncle Zeke couldn't serve because he had had, uh, well, had polio. So he had one leg that was shorter than the other due to the disease. As much as they needed bodies for the war, they weren't taking people like that. And my other uncle, Gus, was, had been paralyzed in an auto wreck at 21 years of age. And so my dad was the lone uh, brother that served in, in World War II. Um, and then he gets home, and where do we pick up the story there? Well, so, yeah, my dad, in, in, during the war, my uncle Zeke, at one point in time, Joel Thorne shut the shop down. Uh, because uh, you couldn't get any raw materials, right. okay? But so all that was going on. So my Uncle Zeke got a job working on the Big Inch, which was a pipeline uh, that came out of the Midwest, Oklahoma, whatever, went up to the eastern seaboard to take fuel for the war effort. And uh, he was a oiler because you'd have these pumping stations that were every so often and he would go check the pumping station, oil them and all that. So he, he worked. Uh, when the war uh, ended, Frank Curtis offered my Uncle Zeke a job uh, to go to work at what he was going to start called Curtis Craft. Uh, Frank built cars prior to Curtis Craft and those were just Frank Curtis built cars. I, I own the first midget that uh, Frank Curtis designed and built. It's not a Curtis Craft midget at that point. And uh, so my Uncle Zeke said, yeah, great. That'd be great. And he became the first employee at Curtis Craft. 
another gentleman by the name of Emil Deet became the second employee, and then it went from there. When my dad got discharged out of the uh, war and he came back on the Queen Mary across the ocean, ended up, uh, they took him uh, to Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma. I think that's where Tinker was. Yep. Uh, and uh, then they discharged him there. And Zeke said, hey, Ed, come on out to the West Coast and went back out there. At first, my dad did not go to work for Curtis. And then Frank said, hey, Ed, you know, you, you were fabricating aluminum because that's what caused the boom and, and the increase in technology and auto racing were a lot of these guys like my dad that had been trained by the U.S. military. My dad wasn't, but there were a lot that were. And uh, they ended up going into the auto racing field and they had all these fabrication skills. I mean, you know, I mean, look at a lot of helicopter pilots to this day come out of the military. Sure. It's a cheaper way to learn how to fly a helicopter until the little Robinson came along, which is a great way to learn how to fly a helicopter today. So my dad went to work at Curtis Craft and, and they helped build Indy cars, midgets, uh, you know, in Glendale, California. Now, What's the genesis of the Justice Brothers brand? Because they got into lubricants and other uh, petroleum products pretty early. Was that an an outgrowth of Zeke working on the big inch and he kind of saw how the petroleum business worked? No, actually, Zeke is involved, but not in that way. Zeke ran into a product in Glendale and the product had... Uh, just been, uh, quote, developed by this gentleman who was a retired attorney and he was in his uh, 70s, mid-70s, and it was unknown. I mean, if the product was made here, literally five feet away, nobody basically knew about the product. And so this, this older gentleman was out trying to find people to buy this product. Zeke saw it. He was uh, impressed by what he saw. And uh, my dad and Zeke, that's the one question that, uh, and I asked him a ton of questions, and we did a lot of interviews over the years. Uh, They never really could quite give me a definitive answer why they saw the need to leave building race cars and get into the oil additive business. Other than the best they could come up with was we were building so many of these race cars that we thought we're going to fill the pipeline and then what are we going to do? And on top of that, uh, they felt that their ability to earn a living was restricted by they were just basically hired labor and, uh, and that, you know, good or bad, they got paid X an hour and uh, my dad and Zeke were looking for opportunities where they could have a greater control over their earning ability and selling was that opportunity. And uh, so this product just happened to work into that whole picture that they, they were had in their mind of trying to uh, better themselves. And cause they came from, uh, really no money. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Their dad was an auctioneer. He did all right, but their dad died young uh, from cancer in his early 40s. And 
six kids. They they never really lived in a really uh, nice home. Their early home was very small. I mean, it looked like something you'd find down in the bayou. Typical even. Depression era kids. Yeah, I mean, really. I mean, they came from nothing. Yeah. And uh, they're uh, very uh, not uncommon American success story. Uh, my dad, you know, told me when I was growing up, Ed, from the neck down you're worth so much an hour from the neck up you can determine what you're worth uh, but there's risk involved in that there's no guarantees in life and uh, so they saw this product and they took all the money they had and invested it into 90 cases of this product and they had to move to Florida because the way the opportunity presented itself even though they were the first distributors for this product uh, and they had no place to live down there, had never been to Florida in their life, and were driving across country on uh, Highway 10 today uh, that goes right into Jacksonville, Florida, where we settled. And uh, so, like my dad said, uh, nothing happens until somebody sells something. And he said, I had a wife who was six months pregnant. We had a child on the way and we needed a place to live and uh, we needed to eat and so i had to go out and sell the product so if that doesn't make you enthusiastic and have the motivation to do something and and there were times in their life when i asked them did you ever consider going on unemployment and uh and he all my dad and all my uncles said no it, it was never, ever, ever something that we considered because back in that era, it was considered uh, what they call going on the dole. And uh, they were able-bodied. And case in point, my uncle Gus, who you know was paralyzed, he handled the stuff in the office. And my dad and uncles were uh, very tight. They were brothers from the old school. I mean, they would have disagreements and uh, get into uh, disagreements that people thought they were going to come to blows. And I always warn people, do not try to break them up, because if you do, they will become united, and you are now the new target. <laughs> and uh, they will deflect all that, what they were just deflecting on each other, now to you. So I said, just let them work it out. They'll work it out. And, you know, they had disagreements just like everybody does. I they mean, were brothers. Know, that's how brothers are. That's it. I mean, look at they, they uh, you know, they, they beat on each other when they were growing up. And uh, that's, that's what they call socialization skills. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, that's people that train dogs will tell you the same thing. I mean, you know, you take a dog away from the litter early and they tend to be scared and they can be more of a biter, et cetera. It's good for the dogs to stay together in the litter and chew on each other and, and you know, I mean, just sort of learn how to get along rather than alienating them and becoming a, quote, loner. Right. So Now, you were born into a family that was around race cars, you know, knew everyone in the business. What is your first memory of uh, being at a track or being around race cars? Can well, you? Uh, yeah, I've got a number. I mean, uh, when I was growing up, we'd do these family Sunday drives, you know, which a lot of people did. And uh, we were out by the Pomona Fairgrounds and they were running drag races on that patch of asphalt that they still do today for the, the Winter Nationals and the World Finals. And 
my dad, we pulled up, and they didn't have any protective uh, screening on the chain link fence. You could look in and see it. You could actually stand outside, not buy a ticket, and uh, it was different. You know, I mean, a lot of things were different back then. And so my dad says, Ed, look, watch, there's a car at the starting line. So I look, and I'm hanging out the window of the back of uh, my parents' car, and uh, hell yeah. And I go, what are they going to do? And he goes, they're going to go down the track, you know, and all. So I look down for whatever reason. And when I look back up, I go, where'd the cars go? <laughs> and boom, they were down the track gone. And I, it, it, for my impression as a young kid at that time, it was as if somebody waved a magic wand and the cars were gone. And, uh, and they were not going fast at that point. I mean, you know, this is a hundred and some miles an hour probably. I mean. How old do you think you were at that point? Oh, I was under 10. Uh, yeah, I was under 10. Uh, but, you know, I, I was meeting people and, uh, you know, I had, a, I had a quarter midget when I was five. And I drove that for a little while, uh, five, six. And then my mom was the most instrumental in sort of putting the lid on that deal. And my dad was very much in favor of me not becoming a race car driver. It was dangerous business. Well, yeah, I get asked asked that question probably more common than any other question is, how come you never became a race car driver? Uh, Well, it wasn't because I necessarily didn't want to when I was a kid, but my dad in his in that era, you know, there were ten drivers a year getting killed. I mean, the greatest names. Okay, it was sheer bad luck. Okay, not for lack of skill a lot of times. And uh, I mean, to and there this were, day, and there were no safety measures per no, se. No, no, no flame retardant uh, helmets were leather helmets. Uh, they wore a lap belt. No shoulder harnesses. Uh, you know, the idea for race cars at that era was to get thrown from the car. Right. Uh, the cars were built incredibly strong, uh, which would make you think that it would protect the driver, but actually that actually uh, helped contribute to driver death. Today, the cars are built to fly apart, and so that disperses the energy, and drivers have a greater tendency to survive. So, but I, my dad said, look, Ed, uh, you know, if you, in effect, sort of want to have a short life, uh, you know, you become a race car driver. And he didn't mean it in a derogatory way. It was just realistic. So he, he helped to divert me into the photography world and, uh, which I was fascinated by. And I've always been fascinated and had a strong interest in the arts, graphic design, illustration. Uh, there was a point in time I, I really thought I might want to become a cartoonist. When was the first time you picked up a camera? Well, I got my first film camera when I was 12, and it was a, a reflex uh, rangefinder camera, uh, fixed lens, you know, and you bring the images together and all that. And uh, so I started shooting with that. And I've actually uh, had the pictures that I shot with that camera have been in publications. Uh, and, you know, the, I've sold them years later. And then from there, I got my first uh, SLR, a single lens reflex 
reflex camera, which was a, a uh, Nikon F, which was a you know historic SLR. That's interchangeable lens. And so the interchangeable lens part uh, for auto racing, because that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to shoot pictures of the race cars. Here I was going to all these events with my dad and my family, and I wanted to be able to shoot pictures at them. Now your dad being who he was, I'm guessing that allowed you some access at the track that most people wouldn't get. Yeah, yes and no. Uh, Yes. So I would be around people and just capturing just things happening. And part of photography is access. Okay. I mean, uh, but you can make access. I mean, I, I show young people all the time how to, I mean, I've gone to lots of events where I haven't had quote the pass and still can come home with great images and uh, because you have to train yourself, you have to train your eye, you have to train, you have to be, you know, a gorilla photographer. And uh, so you can do that without credentials. But really, one of the seminal events was my dad had hired a photographer to shoot pictures of one of our race cars, uh, the backup pickup, the backwards wheel stander. And by the uh, way, Justice Brothers had been sponsoring race cars since what 1950 the first indy car yeah, oh no but before that prior to that yeah okay. right after the war uh and we won indy in 50. Gotcha. Uh, so anyway uh he hired this photographer the guy went out uh, he was a newspaper photographer uh newspaper photographers are general good all-round photographers i mean that's how they win the perlitzer prize etc uh but shooting motorsports is a different thing, uh, particularly for the type of picture that my dad, they wanted. And the guy was really not a sports photographer. And uh, the picture was really not good, in my opinion. Okay. And I told my dad that. And here's this young kid saying, you know, dad, that picture is junk. Uh, and uh, I said, it's terrible. You can't see the logo. It's blurred. Uh, you know, he used, the guy used the wrong shutter speed, et cetera, et cetera. It didn't pan. And, and anyway, and my dad said, well, you think you can do better? And I said, yeah, I know I can do better. Uh, you know, not lacking for self-confidence. And, uh, and he said, okay, well, then if you can do better, you go ahead and shoot one and, and show me. Well, I did. I shot a better picture, and, and that was uh, one of the first published photos of mine. And you were, and, what, about 15 at this point? Uh, yeah, about 14. 14. Because uh, I, I, at 14, I was selling pictures to the magazines, and uh, I'd have to be driven to the racetrack by my dad or one of my uncles, and they'd drop me off many times, never stay there. I'd go off into the track, do my thing. Again, it was a different time, okay? Uh, you know, it was a lot safer. It was a lot, a lot of things. And so I would do that. And uh, so anyway, yeah, actually, I may have been even younger than 14, to tell you the truth. Uh, so anyway, somewhere around there. It was very early on. And so... Uh, I wanted to get the job of being the track photographer at Irwindale Raceway, which was a local drag strip 
not far from where we are right now. And, uh, but my mentor, good friend, had the job of uh, track photographer. But an opportunity came up that the fellow who wrote the weekly column for Drag News and National Dragster, the two big newspapers that covered drag racing in that era, was leaving the strip. And I could get that position if I wanted it. Now, I was in high school at this point, and, but it was a job at the drag strip and I was going to get paid 35 bucks a week, and I got a free hamburger, <laughs> okay? And so I took it. And so I, I wrote the weekly column for Drag News, National Dragster, every week for Irwindale, and that included the big events with funny cars, top fuel, and fuel alters, and drag bikes, and all that other stuff. And it also included the weekends when it was John Doe driving his... Uh, Run what you Plymouth, know. whatever. Yeah, or Chevy Nova or whatever, which is exciting for those who are driving those cars, but it wasn't, you know, it's not like watching a funny car, okay? And so it can be pretty, pretty uh, plain vanilla. You know, uh, Bruce Barrett beat John Doe off the line, you know, John Doe red lighted. So you, you start having to develop your writing style and learn how to write. And so I did what a lot of people do. I read what other people wrote, and I then made that my own, but looking at the adjectives, the verbs, you know, sprint it off the line, you know, all this type of stuff. Color it up a yeah, little. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and you know, I had, it had to be a certain length, but it couldn't be over a certain length. So you learn all these things. It was tough for a guy that age, for me, uh, but it was great. And, you know, I write a lot today and people go, wow, you know, you really enjoy your writing and all that. And I guess my message to people is, okay, yeah, if I can do it, you can do it, okay? Uh, you just gotta keep doing it. You just gotta keep doing it. I mean, that's how you hone any skill. Ed, the history of Indianapolis Motor Speedway is so incredible over a hundred years now and you were there for a lot of it yeah yeah I've, I've been blessed to be involved the the Indy 500 uh, I agree with AJ Foyt and many others it's the greatest spectacle in racing it is the greatest race in the world now a very very close second and I know that some of my friends feel differently, is the 24-hour Le Mans. And really, you know what? They're apples and oranges, okay? But I will tell you the difference between the two. Indy has the largest single-day sporting attendance of any event in the world. Paid. Paid. Le Mans is not all paid. World Cup is multiple days, okay? Le Mans is two days. Indy is one day. Uh... Indy, they've actually run 105 races. It was interrupted by two world wars. And so there was a period of time, you know, starting at 1911 was the first 500-mile race at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. 1909 was the first race at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. But starting in 1911 to last year, with the interruption of the two world wars, there's been 105 races. 
my family has been involved in 75 of those 105 races. Uh, me, I think it's like 45 for me. Uh, my first was in 1977. And you count that. Unlike birthdays where you subtract and you don't count your birth year because it didn't go a year. When you're involved in something, you count the first year because that counts. And uh, so I, I, you know, I mean, uh, I was uh, brought into the Indianapolis Old Timers Club at the same time my dad and Uncle Zeke were, which was quite an honor. Uh, I was in my 40s. I was the youngest member uh, at that time. And uh, it's... You know, there's just nothing like Indianapolis. I mean, look at uh, Romain Grosjean, okay, uh, gave his feeling on IndyCar racing. IndyCar racing really at at this point in time is more competitive than F1. And that's not an anti-F1 sentiment. I love F1. And I think this last year has been phenomenal in F1. And uh, I love all forms of racing, by the way. I mean, equally, okay? Uh, but you have a greater chance for some unknown person to win an IndyCar than you do in F1. I mean, look at it's. There's Mercedes, Red Bull, and then there's everybody else, okay? Uh, I mean, the... the the lack of parity in F1, and, and by no means do I think they should uh, regulate to create parity. I, I don't like that. I don't like that when the sanctioning body gets involved. But, but there are so many top-level teams in IndyCar that it's really, really tough. And this next year is going to be just equally as good. Uh, Jackie Stewart, I was next to Jackie one time, and I've, I've seen him multiple times, been with him multiple times at Indianapolis over the years. And he was announcing for uh, ABC, but this was prior to going on the air, and he had a group there. And we're talking, we're down on the grid. The cars are on the track right prior to, gentlemen, start your engines. The crews are still around. I'm standing there. Jackie's got a group with him. And he's explaining how nothing in his life has ever equaled what we're experiencing right now, this the excitement, this crowd, the energy, the whole just, um, spectacle. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the greatest spectacle in racing. Yeah, the spectacle. Uh, the only thing he said that beat, beats this is when he was in Vatican Square and the Pope came out. Now, that sort of puts it into perspective. And, and it is unlike anything. Seriously. I mean, it is unlike anything. It's... There's another thing in a completely different way that people, until they experience it, they have no idea. And that is taking somebody to their first top fuel or funny car drag race and having them stand by the starting line where the spectators can stand and them looking at you like, oh, oh my gosh, my heart was rattling in my body. I mean, the earth was moving. It was shaking. I mean, you know, it's, you, there's no way to explain that unless you experience it. And the same thing for Indianapolis. There's just no way that gentlemen start your engines, the back home in Indiana. Of course, Jim Neighbors, God bless him, who was a great friend. 
uh, he was a great tradition for so many years, and now the new fellow, who's a great guy, man, what a voice that guy has. I had breakfast with him uh, prior to the race this year, just by happenstance with he and a friend of his. Uh, that's, the hair on the back of your neck stands up, right? It does. And then the cannons go off when the cars are starting and the balloons are going. And uh, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, it, it is really amazing. Indianapolis is one of a kind. And A.J. Foyt's right. Indy made A.J. Foyt. A.J. Foyt didn't make Indianapolis. Let's talk about sponsorship at Indianapolis, being involved with that. And uh, I'm sure you've got a lot of memories there, too. Yeah, okay. So I'll, I'll use 1950 because uh, that one's interesting because we won. That, that year in our book, uh, Legacy of Justice, um, there's a copy of a letter. I have the original letter that was sent to my Uncle Zeke from Frank Curtis offering the sponsorship deal for $5,000 for the year. At that time, in 1950, Indianapolis was the first race of the year. Surprisingly enough, the biggest event of the IndyCar season, or the champ car season as it was known then, was the first race of the year. That is why, in my opinion, why the Daytona 500 is at the beginning of the year at Daytona. They could have put it any time of the year, but surprisingly enough, stock car racing's biggest event of the year is at the beginning of the year, okay? So whatever, that's, that's my take. But uh, Frank offered it for $5,000. He had run the car at, in 49, Johnny Parsons was the driver for Frank in 49. The car was red, and they won the national championship. It was number 12 in, in 1949, as I remember. They won the national championship. So going into 1950, the year that he offered my family the sponsorship, the car was going to be carrying the number one. It was the national champion. It was the Max Verstappen for next year, because he just announced he's going to carry the number one. And so uh, that was part of it. So they, they went to the company they were with. The company was not interested, did, had a very low opinion of racers at that time. You know, motorcycle riders back in the day were, you know, not a, somebody you'd let your daughter date, okay? Back then, you know, they ne'er-do-well sort of reputation. So anyway, uh, they cobbled together the money and a lot of money back then, and put together the deal. Well, when they got to Indianapolis, Frank said, well, I I'm going to have a team car to Johnny that's going to be driven by Freddie Agabash, and then that will be one of my newer cars. And you know what? We'll paint it up just like that other car, and it's a freebie. So they had two cars in the field for 5000 bucks. Both yellow. Yeah, both yellow, which was my dad's choice. Uh, the company... Uh, did not like the fact that he painted them yellow cars, but my dad wanted the cars to stand out. And these were way before the quote, yellow submarine uh, Pennzoil cars. Lo and behold, Johnny uh, wins the race and it changed my dad in their lives. So yeah, we've sponsored cars at Indy every year uh, over the years, AJ Foyt one year, Johnny Rutherford, uh, Cotton Farmer, uh, Chuck Hulse. Uh, 
I can't even remember all of them. Well, it's uh, a lot. It's a long time. Yeah, a long time. I mean, uh, uh, and God. Ed, how about this year? Well, this year, yeah. Gosh, you know what? I mean, uh, yeah. How we, can we not talk about that? Yeah. Well, you know what? Seventy-one years after we went to Victory Lane in 2021, we found Victory Lane again on the side of a car uh, as a sponsor with them using our products, et cetera. Uh, with Elio Castro Nevis, and that was pretty special. We we were involved with two teams this year: the Meyer Shank Racing Team and the Dreyer Reinbold Racing Team. Both excellent teams. Both uh, mean a lot to me in different ways. Uh, the Dreyer Reinbold Team is a very traditional, old school the way Indy used to be. They typically only run Indianapolis, which is very unusual in today's world. They might run another race or two. But Elio, I, I felt from the beginning, I felt from the beginning, provided the team was able to put together the good pit stops, et cetera, et cetera, that Elio knew how to find Victory Lane. I mean, he's been there three times before. Elio is a very smart driver. He, he, he reminds me a little bit of Al Unzer, senior, as most people say, even though he is not technically senior. Uh, Al Unzer, who just recently passed away, who was a very good friend, was a very patient driver. He would let the race come to him. And people don't understand how hard that is for a driver to do that. When you're on the track and you're seeing people running ahead from you and you're very myopic in your viewpoint and you see cars pull away from you and you're, they say, yeah, you're good, you're good, you're running seventh, you're running sixth, you're what? Man, I mean, most competitors are alpha dogs and Parnelli Jones would be the first to tell you he was an alpha dog. He told me a uh, number of times if he had been able to be more like Al Sr., Jimmy Johnson, very patient driver like Al Sr., he said, I would have won more races. But he said, I always had to be the leader of the pack. I had to be that alpha dog out there in front. And you pay the price for that in many times. So I knew Elio was running in the top 10. And I knew, you know, it's that last 20 laps, you want to be here. Last 15 laps, you want to be here. Last 10 laps, okay, now you want to be here within striking distance. And, and I knew that if, if Elio, the way it was going, that he stayed on the same lap, he was in that front pack, that he had a really good chance of winning. Now, the last turn can determine the race. And, uh, you know, I interviewed Chip Ganassi in an event up in Napa recently, and, of course, his car finished sec second, Alex Pelot. Tough competition in that race. Alex Pelot was very, very tough competition. He was a rookie, too. This young kid is a great driver. He's going to be great. Won the national championship, of course, with IndyCar this year. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's, I'm not stating anything that hasn't been shown. But that young guy is really, really good. And uh, Chip told me, he said, you know, I knew when he pulled up behind Ryan hunter Ray in turn three and got that toe, Chip said, I knew it was over. Now, Chip's a former driver, okay? He knows what it feels like in the seat. So he's been there, done that. As I said to Chip, jokingly, this is the difference between experience and a new young kid. Alex, maybe from what he learned, he won't let that happen to him again. Next time it would be different. 
But that's next time. This was this time. And this time, Elio had the experience and, and he had a car and a team under him that was delivering what needed to happen that day. And so it's not over till it's over, as they say. And I don't want to say, oh, I knew he was going to win because nobody can say that. But I knew that he had a good chance. But I've also known that we've been on other cars that have had a good chance and they haven't finished or they've finished second. You know, Jeff Ward, a few years back, we finished second with Jeff Ward. We, Greg Ray, we sat on the front row of the, of the field and led laps that year. Uh, everything's just got to line up. That's why when, when we won, it was as big a shock to me as it was to anybody. And, and it was unbelievable after 71 years, you know, to finally get into victory lane again. Did it pop into your head that you wish your dad could have been there to see it again? Oh, yeah, obviously, sure. Uh, I wish my dad and my uncles, all three of them, could be around to see a lot of things. Uh, they never got to see the book that came out. Uh, and uh, I think they would just be uh, blown away it, at how Tom Madigan uh, and me, I'm a co-author, uh, were able to tell the story communicate what they went through, bring it on up into modern day and all the years of my involvement into the company, now into a third generation with my daughters. And I think they would just be blown away with what, what I was able to mine. I mean, I, I found a picture of the first racetrack they ever went to a race at. Uh, I mean, the amount of time and research that, that uh, when, when they want, well, my dad really never told me the story about uh, our sponsorship to the degree that I found of motorcycles on Daytona Beach. Because, you know, there's a, there's a whole time that they were running stock cars, they were running motorcycles too. And the motorcycles have sort of gotten a short stick on the history on that. And trust me, I'm speaking from experience because I did every bit of research you can on motorcycles on Daytona Beach and it's really not been covered the way it should have been or near to what stock cars have. So I had all these pictures from uh, I think it was 1949 when Floyd MD won on an Indian motorcycle. It was the last major race won by an Indian motorcycle 1949 and Floyd MD of course famous guy. His son later Don MD would come back and win the race, only father-son team to do that when they moved it to Daytona International Speedway. So when I did the research and I found out that Life Magazine had covered that race in an issue of life and that the quote that I found in the Life Magazine, which is in the book, something to the effect of the city of Daytona Beach couldn't have been under more peril or danger during this race of the motorcycles, et cetera, if it had been under direct bombardment. <laughs> I mean, now that is a quote for the eternity. I mean, this, and you know, there, I forget how many uh, riders died that year. Uh, there was like 150 starters. Think about that, 150 motorcycles starting on the beach at Daytona. And, and Daytona's wide, but that's yeah. a lot of bikes for even Daytona. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, it is. And so... You know, the, the fact that w I was able to find these things and connect the dots and, 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 and honestly find the story about my uncle driving a two-man Indy car on the street after it had retired after about like five or six Indy 500s and he 
drove it on the street as a streetcar, drove it from California to Kansas. I mean, it, it, it's just, I had a lot of help from, from above, trust me, when it came to, to piecing this together. And, and not just to the best of our ability. I'm telling you, I was able to nail down the facts based on documents I was able to find that are, are documents. It's not somebody's opinion that, well, I think this car did this or that. I mean, if, it, if we couldn't prove it, we didn't put it in the book. Well, and of course, original source material is the best you can get. It's best. the gold standard. Best. And it, and it, is made, it has been made a lot easier by the internet. But anybody that's invo been involved in writing a book knows to do it right, it's a multi-year project. You, you slap out a book in a year or so. I mean, that's what they do for the quick deals, you know, when somebody dies and they slap it out and they sell a million copies. But it takes a lot of time to really do the history right. Well, no, this is an heirloom book, and we're talking nearly 500 pages. Right. I love the title, Legacy of Justice. Yeah, that was Tom Madigan's. Uh, he, Tom, to be quite honest, uh, had complete editorial uh, oversight. He wanted to do the book years ago, and I said no, because I didn't feel it was the right time. There is a time to write a history, uh, and... The best time is as deep into the history as you can while people are still around, okay? And we were really blessed in that way because a lot of people from when we interviewed them, when Tom interviewed them, uh, passed away before the book came out. Uh, Vic Edelbrock, uh, Junior. Uh, Junior Johnson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, God, a lot of them. A lot of them. Uh, but he had complete oversight over it, and, and he told the story. It's, it's a completely accurate for those who, and it it's actually is a very quick read, even though it's, it's a, it technically 496 pages, and then there's a couple pages in addition, the fly leaves and all that, that make it 500, but it's 496 on the, the writing. Uh, if you sat down and read it, it's really a quick read, and it is the absolute start to finish. All the good news, the bad news, uh, warts and all of the Justice family, and in our business life and racing life. And so it's hopefully a inspirational book for people to want to take risks in life. And it's not all about racing. It's about life, living life how these guys took risks, how we continue to take risks today. Uh, you know, it's just part of life, part of running a business. And if you don't, you know, if you don't scare yourself, so many things in my life, I put myself into positions where I felt very uncomfortable at the time, but I always grew. And if you don't take those risks, you'll never grow. You'll ne if you stay where you're comfortable, you will never, ever grow. You never, you know, George Patton had a great quote that I loved. A halfway plan violently executed today is better than a perfect plan executed next month. Meaning, let's just do it. Because you'll never, ever have a perfect plan. And... In addition to the book, again, Legacy of Justice, that's available on Amazon, right? It is, Amazon.com. Okay, but in addition to the book, you've got a fantastic photo archive. And it's not just your photos, but it's the photos of your fellow 
auto racing, motor racing photographers over the years, right? Right, I do. Uh, the, the Justice Archive, uh, I don't, if you go to edjusticejr.com, and that's J-R for junior.com, you will, can go to the photographer page, and then at the bottom, click on another page that has a lot of photos. That page are all my photographs, but I do have the archives of nine other significant motorsports photographers. We're friends of mine, which I've acquired. Uh, they're all gone, and, uh, and I, I have these archives, and they, they are amazing. And having all their archives along with mine uh, has shown me a lot of truths about how we all went to a race, how we all captured a race, to, because, to be able to compare, how did I capture this race? Okay, how did these other photographers that maybe were at that same race that weekend? It gives me the ability to be able to say, okay, this is exactly the way it was. It wasn't just based on my experience. This was, quote, the way that we did things then compared to the way we did things now. But, yeah, no, it, it's, it's amazing. And, and the, the images are available for use. There's a charge, obviously. Look, there's no money in running an archive, okay, unless you're... Uh, the Batman archive yeah, or, or Getty. Or, yeah, or Getty. Yeah. Which, uh, but for the most part, uh, you know, I, I supply pictures to publications or books or you know I had a request the other day uh, from a guy whose dad drove a particular car he saw the image and so for that I will sell a print to somebody like that because auto racing has been very very good to the justice family we've contributed a lot to auto racing no doubt but it's been very very good to us and uh I look at the auto racing world as a family, and uh, I don't look at it as whether this guy, if I sell him a print, whether he can ever do anything for me or not. I'm not, I'm not looking for that. I'm doing it because I want to do it, and because I think it'd just be cool for this guy to get a print for his dad who drove that car. His dad's still alive, a long time ago, and uh, so that's cool. Well, Ed, thanks for having me in today. I mean, this has been really special, and uh, we could go on and on, but I just appreciate your time. Great. I appreciate you coming out, and it's been a real pleasure. All right, once again, edjusticejr.com. You can learn more. The book is called Legacy of Justice, available on Amazon. Check out Ed's Instagram at edjusticejr, and uh, I'll have all links in the show notes. Thanks again, Ed. Thank you. Great to be with you today. Thank you so much. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. Don't forget to follow, rate, and review the show. It's how people find it, and you are absolutely essential for that. You can also go to buymeacoffee.com and support the podcast with as little as $2. I'll see you back here on June 1st with more of the people and the stories behind the machines. So until then, I'm Maurice Merrick, and as always, thanks for listening.